in last week's sermon text, the Apostle Paul answered this question, who is Jesus and why does he matter on a cosmic scale? And here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase. We look at this Jesus and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything God started in Him and finds its purpose in Him. And not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together, all because of His death, His blood that poured down on the cross. He holds it all together right up to this moment. Quite a breathtaking statement about who Jesus is. And here's what this is saying. In short, if it wasn't for Jesus, it wouldn't exist. If you ask how all things hold together, it's because of Jesus. And if you ask for what purpose all of it exists, it's for Jesus. That's what Paul is saying about Jesus on a cosmic scale. These are sweeping claims that he made last week. But our, te- but our text today shows us that these cosmic claims have real-life power and real-life application. When a person or a community embraces the message of Jesus, it changes its DNA. It makes it something that it could never be on its own or that it could never w- otherwise do. There is transformation from the inside out. The passage before us today challenges us to think about the question, what does true spiritual growth look like in the Christian life and in the life of a local church? I'm hearing myself in Mandarin simultaneously, excuse me. As consumers, it is tempting to evaluate how life is going based on quantity and numbers. Have we saved enough? Are we meeting our goals? Do we have enough to upgrade soon? What more can I be doing to be getting ahead? And as a church, we face similar temptations. As one pastor put it, it's tempting to look at things like building, bucks, and butts in the seat to see how we are spiritually doing. Obviously, that pastor is from Philadelphia using language like that. You see, whether it's in our personal life or in our church life, the question of quantity can dominate our understanding of growth. While quantity can truly be a sign of God's blessing, it's not the primary demonstration of His power. Jesus' cosmic power produces a different kind of change in the body. It produces a different kind of growth in the church. So here's the first way Christ produces change in the church from Colossians. Number one, Christ makes us right with God. 
That's what we see in verses 21 and 22. You see, before Epaphras shared the message of Jesus with the Colossians, because remember, Paul never met this congregation in Colossae. A person by the name of Epaphras heard the preaching of Paul and then took that message back to his home city of Colossae and through his ministry, the church of Colossae formed. So Paul reminds them of what they were before they received the message of the gospel. Not only because they were Gentiles, but due to their attitudes and actions, they were alienated from the very life of God. Back in June 2018, a group of young soccer players and their assistant coach were stranded in a cave in Thailand. Trapped in a dark cave with the risk of floodwaters coming to sweep in at any moment, the group was completely cut off from the outside world without any hope of getting out on their own. But through the heroic and costly effort of nearly 10,000 people, divers, rescue workers, police officers, soldiers, and many more uh, groups of people helping, this group was miraculously saved totally unaware of what it took to rescue them from their fallen plight, from their hopeless predicament. And that is exactly how the Colossians, how any of us stood in relationship to God before Jesus Christ came down and saved us. We were trapped in the dark cave of sin, unable to save ourselves without hope in the world, and at the cost of Jesus' own life, using the full power of God, He came down to save us. And whereas the soccer players knew they were lost in a dark cave, many of us truly didn't know how lost we were until Jesus Christ took us out of darkness and brought us into his light. Now, especially in American society, we are prone to think highly of ourselves and be proud of our achievements, and we confuse a sense of well-being with actually being well. And in our live and let live and live for yourself culture, the message of salvation is very simple. Stuff yourself full, and you will be filled. And that leaves us feeling quite empty because that doesn't get us back to the God who made us to know Him. We are told that true life is found on the path of self-discovery or right around the corner with that next novel experience only to find that we have lost ourselves again. These Colossians may or may not have known how lost they were before they met Christ but they sure found out after they received his life-giving message, his life-giving love. Not just because they could look back and say, this is the way we used to think, this is the way we used to behave, but also because Christ has truly transformed their character from the inside out. He has made them to be and do things they could otherwise never be or do on their own. In Christ, They are not now what they once were. And anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ has this very same testimony to share. No one is born a Christian. When Christ enters the life of a person, 
He doesn't just shuffle around the furniture. He comes in and he makes a full renovation of the heart from top to bottom. That is what the Colossians experienced. And that is what anyone who follows the Lord Jesus Christ has experienced. But not only has their character changed, not being alienated from God means that they have joined Jewish believers into being one body now. You see, right up the road from the Colossians, Paul said this about the Ephesian church before they came to Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenant of promise without God in the world. In other words, the Colossians were were without a true community where God was at the center. From the bitter divisions between Jews and Gentiles, Jesus formed one one life-giving community called the church. And it is in this community where people who have no place in the world find a seat at the table. And where people with hostile divisions find peace with one another. Harvard professor of public policy Robert Putnam laments that the United States in recent years has experienced a sharp social decline where people of different ethnic, socioeconomic, political, educational, and age backgrounds virtually no longer intersect face-to-face at all anymore. Society has become just as siloed as it has become polarized. Any comments on some of the regressions that have emerged? There are fewer closer relationships that have been reported, more isolation, less community service, and less care for local communities. Without some major social change, Robert Putnam and other public policy workers fear more breakdown is along the way. Now, from a strictly societal standpoint, do you know of a community where people of different background and ages come together regularly for connection and for a common purpose? Do you know of a body that can bring people together from hostile backgrounds into one family, where people from a Jewish background can be with Arabs? where blacks can be with whites, with Ukrainians can be with Russians, that they can embrace each other. Do you know of a community like that? You see, the cosmic power of Jesus Christ has not only reconciled us from the God that we were alienated from and brought us back to Him, but He has created true community across diversity, even between hostile parties. And when people outside the church get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing in this community across our differences, they'll want to know more because what they're going to see here is unlike anything else they see out there. It's not happening in other sectors of society. But by God's grace, it is happening here week in and week out. Our togetherness testifies to Christ's power in us and among us. Now, what is the means that Jesus makes us right with God? 
Verse 22, Paul says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciliation comes through the humiliation of the cross where Jesus shed his own blood. And very practically, what that means is that when we keep to Christians who are just like ourselves, or we cut ourselves from others because of their politics or because of subordinate issues, we are threatening to use the language of the King James to tear asunder what God has joined together at the expense of Jesus' own death on the cross. We ought not to pull away from each other if Christ died to make us one community reconciled to God. Christ makes us right with God. That's the first sign of true growth. And here's the second. Christ makes us stable in faith through suffering. Christ makes us stable in faith through suffering. That's what we see in verses 23 to 27. In the Christian life, faith functions as a verb. In certain gospel presentations, faith is reduced down to a one-time decision. And unfortunately, when we do that, that decision becomes like other decisions we have made, like something we buy and then we put on the shelf and only access when we need it. And we soon forget about it. That kind of faith is unrecognizable to Paul. For Paul, faith continues down a steady and stable course. Fits of excitement, flashes of eagerness are not the barometers of a sturdy faith. Feelings are a part of a life of faith, but they don't characterize it. Loyal allegiance to Christ is the sign that His grace rules our hearts. A recent study shows that the average person views 5,000, just think about this, 5,000 advertisements a day. And what these advertisements rely on is for us to act on our feelings and not on our deeper values, and certainly not from our allegiance to Christ. And not just through ads. But every day, our own thoughts and impulses, other influences around us, tempt us to swerve off the road of faith. It's not that in our particular context, we may be tempted to be especially bad, but we are tempted to be especially distracted, hurried, and busied to the point where faith is no longer central. That's our temptation in our culture. So to use another metaphor that I think is at the root of what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying faith in Christ is a house that we build our lives on day by day. And each day we can add bricks to that foundation of our faith. We can choose to give our attention to the things that actually build our faith. (coughs) Excuse me. Rather than listen to another podcast, the news on the way to work, we can pray for people in our small group. Instead of getting sucked into our phones at work meetings, we can ask God for an opportunity to encourage a coworker that is deeply, deeply struggling. 
we can look at our schedule and see that we do have some hours in a week to help a local organization like Choice One and volunteer. Before we buy something, we can look and, we can look and say, do I actually need this? Or can I bless someone else with my purchase? Or maybe the last thing we do before we go to bed is meditate on the words of Jesus rather than watch the last quarter of the football game. Hey, listen, the Giants, the Eagles, the Cowboys, they're all done anyway. There's nobody good on. There's nothing left, folks. Let's take advantage of that time. Now, these practices are portals into something much deeper that Paul is talking about. They are practical ways to keep your hope in the gospel over everything else alive. You see, when we see pastors who have significant moral failings, or churches perpetuate a toxic culture, or really any Christian fall into sin, whenever we see that, these things happen because people have lost sight of the fact that Jesus' way of living is really the best way of life. That's why that happens. And in Paul's world, words, they have lost sight of the gospel that they have heard. And here's what Paul wants the Colossians to see today, wants us to see through the Colossians. All that Paul had and all that he was, he dedicated to the spread of the gospel. This news about Jesus' victory was, was worth going into all the world and spreading. Why? Because it frees the world from the bondage of sin. And this news was so good and so freeing, Paul was willing to lose his freedom for it. Because he's writing this letter from a prison cell to the church at Colossae. And what Paul is saying is that whatever else you can dedicate your life to, Whatever else you can dedicate your energy to, is it really better than what Jesus Christ has offered you in the gospel? It's the same question for us. Can we really outdo or outmatch all the things that this cosmic Christ has done for us? And Paul is saying, of course not. So why turn away from the message that makes your life secure. Now, in fact, Paul says this message is so important. Look at the extent that he's willing to go in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body. Now, in the earlier part of the chapter, we heard what Paul said. He said, Christ is preeminent above all things. In Jesus, all things through His cross are being reconciled from heaven and on earth. So how could Jesus' suffering lack anything? How can Paul be filling up where Jesus' death has no lack? Well, when the Lord encountered Paul on the road to Damascus, He confronted him with an arresting question. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the church is to persecute Christ. 
An attack on his bride is an attack on him. That is the strength of his union with his body. And although Jesus' suffering on the cross accomplished salvation for the world, his body on earth, the church, that's us. We're going to experience persecution aimed at Christ on his behalf until he returns in glory. Theologian Sam Storms puts it this way, the world hated and afflicted Jesus without ceasing. But since he is not here, their hours, uh, arrows of persecution meant especially for him will strike his followers. Jesus will be continually mocked, his message will be ridiculed, and the church will be met with opposition. Now this looks differently across our world. In our Western context, we often see it in art and literature and in popular culture, like in Andreas Serrano's 1987 work, Crucifixion in Urine. That was a public art display. Another best-selling author recently said, the Bible is simply an anthology of fictions. This is how we hear it in our particular culture. Or maybe you experience in, around the table in your lunchroom where people don't want to talk about faith or when you go to the office and you realize the way that Jesus has taught us how to live really doesn't have a place here. It's not welcomed. Outside of the Western world, followers of Jesus risk their lives. In the past year, in 2023, 132 priests and religious workers were either killed or incarcerated, and that number is higher than the previous year. And just since the turn of the 21st century, 62,000 Nigerian Christians have been killed for their faith. And many ancient churches, buried in the foundation of the church, underneath where the communion table is placed, the bones of martyr are buried. And the reason that is, is because it's a way of saying the church is built on the faith of those who have suffered for Christ. How do we know that our faith is growing? Are we able to remain stable in our faith in the face of opposition? Are we willing to endure the cross, the cost of identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, one thing is certain. We'll never know when we will have opportunity to share our faith or when we will encounter opposition. At my previous job, our office was across the street from City Hall in Philadelphia. And it wasn't uncommon for different kinds of petitions to be uh, circulated within our agency to promote various causes. Some of them I can sign, and others I really couldn't. Well, one one petition that was handed to me by one of my employees, I saw that the president, the vice president, and all the other unit directors signed this particular petition for a particular cause and they were just waiting for my signature on it. Here was an opportunity I did not ask for. I said to the person, as strange as it may sound, 
I actually don't think this particular cause is going to bring more good into the lives of people we care about. I think it's actually going to do some real harm. And as a Christian and as a counselor, I only want to support those things that act in people's best interests. Needless to say, my answer was not as well received as I had hoped. But over time, and by God's grace, the more I worked alongside this person, the more that they actually saw that I really do care about all the patients that can come into our mental health treatment unit. And she started to see how someone could say, I deeply care for all people, wouldn't necessarily support that particular cause. It isn't at odds with truly loving people. And thankfully, over time, at different points, I was able to share a little bit about my faith with Jesus. Many of you have much better stories to share in your workplaces and experiences. Many of you have had the opportunity to even lead co-workers to faith in Christ or classmates to faith in Christ. You see, if we are stable and grounded in our faith, we'll not only be able to speak when the opportunity arises, we'll be able to withstand whatever opposition may come our way for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's the second sign that our faith is truly going. Here's the third. We will know our faith is growing when others are becoming mature in Christ. We will know our faith is growing when others are becoming mature in their faith in Christ. That's what we see in verses 28 and 29. Now this concept of presenting everyone mature in Christ is a very rich one. For starters, it means that not just people who don't know about Jesus, but even people who have been in faith for a long, long time still have a long way to go. They're still growing. So yes, someone who has never read the Bible who now all of a sudden attends a Bible study, starts to read the Bible on their own, yes, they are becoming mature in their faith in Christ. But so is the Christian who invites a new person into their home, shares a meal, and shares prayers together. They're becoming mature in their faith in Christ too. Now, Paul, in our immediate context, is specifically talking about his work as an apostle and as a minister. In his preaching and teaching, his goal was always the same, that everyone would be made mature in Christ. And because he is a wise preacher and teacher, he knows that some people, when you speak to them, require warning. Others require more edification, more explaining. But no matter what Paul did, whether it was in his words or his deeds, he was always teaching others about what it meant to be with Jesus Christ. And Paul says this in Colossians 3 to the whole church of of Colossae. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and warning one another in all wisdom. In other words, every member of the church shares in Paul's apostolic ministry. All of us are tasked with the same responsibility. It's not just about ministry workers, but all of us are to teach others about 
the gospel. There are people in your life right now that only you can teach about Jesus. And nobody else can. I can't. They're not going to listen to a guy standing behind a box in a suit, but they'll listen to you because they trust your character and they know that you're competent in the work that you do. They know you're a good classmate. You are the one that can be used to teach others about Jesus. Now, I love what Paul says next about this, working, this work of presenting Christ. He says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul is saying he works very hard. He uses all his energy. He uses his time. He uses his resources so that others can be reached with the gospel. So that this mission, this mission of Christ can get to all throughout the world. But the strength and the resources and the endurance and the wisdom that he needs are not his. He doesn't live off of his own resources. He lives off of Christ's resources. Just think about that. The one he just said, who made all things, the one who holds everything into existence, even this very moment, the one who defeated sin and death on the cross. It is his power that is reaching down into Paul's life and supplying him with all the energy he needs. You know, we highly value in our context education, credentialing, letters after our name, And there is something to that. Those things are important. But for Paul, the number one thing that gave him confidence was not his educational background or his achievements as a Pharisee, but the knowledge that when he is going out to serve and meet others, he's not going at it alone. It is Christ working in him and through him. Because if it weren't for that, His labor would be in vain, and he couldn't continue on. We heard earlier from Isaiah, God gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. If you do the work of ministry in any way, whether full-time, part-time, or on your own time, we are going to face all kinds of opposition. Even with Christians we're trying to help, even when we try to share the gospel with friends at work, we're going to meet opposition. We will be criticized. Sometimes people will be ungrateful. Not to mention we have to deal with the struggle of our own sins. But as you press on, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He will supply you the resources that you need to carry on, not in your strength, but in His. How do we know that our faith is growing? When people are being made right with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When our faith is being made stable through suffering and when we are making others mature in their relationship with Jesus Christ. May God give us the strength and grace this week to make these true 
in our lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Apostle Paul's example. We thank you that he has demonstrated to us what true faithfulness to you looks like, what true growth really looks like in relationship to you. Forgive us for the various ways that we get distracted. Forgive us for our discouragement. Would you give us your grace this week to press on, to serve you faithfully where you have us, so that others may come to know you. Lord, we thank you for the community of this church, how in a very real and special way, we are able to demonstrate to the world that through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation with you and there is reconciliation with one another. Thank you for what you have done in us and among us. In your name we pray, amen.